This is Daniel Figella, head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. If you're a non-technical leader, you don't write Python, but you want to know where AI can drive value in your business or the enterprises that you serve, you found yourself in the right place. We've covered the topic of heavy industry and manufacturing on a number of occasions over the years, and it's a space that's quickly evolving. Today, we explore a range of AI use cases in the manufacturing space, some more mature than others, and talk both about how specific workflows in the manufacturing space might evolve, but how those differences might also impact the bottom line. Our guest this week is Everton Polino. Everton works in automotive and manufacturing for Samba Nova Systems. Samba Nova Systems has raised some $1 billion to bring their hardware and software solutions to market, a company based out in the Bay Area. And Everton lives close enough to the Detroit area. His previous roles were at SGI and HPE, both of which he was focused on manufacturing and automotive. So he brings his context to bear, both from other data solutions and his experience in the market, and cracks open three unique use cases for where artificial intelligence might make a dent in the future of manufacturing. I think does a good job of making them tangible and also making them fun to talk about. I certainly enjoyed our conversation. I hope you'll get a lot out of it as well. This episode is brought to you by Samba Nova Systems. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global executive audience through our podcasts, newsletters, website, and more, you can reach us at emerj.com slash ad1. That's ad like advertise and then the number one. And you can learn more about our sponsored content guidelines and offerings, as well as download our full media kit about how we help AI vendors break into markets. Without further ado, let's fly into this episode. This is Everton Polino with Samba Nova Systems here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Everton, I'm glad we're able to have you on the program here. And today we're going to be diving into the topic of use cases for artificial intelligence in manufacturing. We've got a few to dive into, and I know one that you've got some experience and some perspective on is one that maybe some of our audience might know, which is predictive maintenance. So I wonder if we could kind of lead things off with how you like to explain the business problem there and where AI finds its fit. Well, uh, you know, thanks. So when you look at predictive maintenance, essentially what we're trying to do is avoid or eliminate unplanned outages in the manufacturing floor, right? And the goal there is to keep optimal efficiency of tooling and optimal efficiency of runtimes for any goods that may be manufactured. And applying artificial intelligence to your predictive maintenance strategy is one way of doing that. And essentially what we're looking for is correlations within the tooling environment that allows us to determine failure before it happens to prevent that unplanned outage. Yeah, so preventing unplanned downtime, you know, that phrase unplanned downtime, very, very popular in predictive maintenance writ large. And I feel like some of our audience might understand and some might not just how big of a consequence that is. I think that people presume, oh, well, you know, when the machine's down, then it's kind of annoying because people have to fix it. But the sort of seriousness of unplanned downtime is greater than that because not only are we unable to deliver for our clients, but inventory can build up. Why is this such a big problem that we'd want to go all the way to, to apply artificial intelligence here? When you look at manufacturers and, and the consequences of unplanned downtime, what makes this a big deal as a use case? Well, I've seen reports. I think Forbes came out and um, with a study that estimated the impact or the cost of manufacturing for unplanned outages is in the tune of $50 billion a year, which is a big number. Right? Gigantic. Gigantic. And yeah. 
and so this is an opportunity for all of us to claim a little bit of that share back, right? Got it. Okay. So, and, and again, I presume that that's not only in maybe lost business with a client because we deliver too late, but maybe an inventory that starts to build up and then we can't use it or in you know, people that are on the shop floor who have to sit there and twiddle their thumbs for eight hours because we have nothing for them to do. It feels like it's a confluence of all those factors. Are there any components I might be missing there? No, I think you I think you hit it, right? I mean, ultimately, it's a cascading effect across the business, right? And, you know, in today's world where we see a, a tremendous volumes of, you know, sub industry supply shortages and demand shortages and supply chain issues, things like this that can be prevented is a great way to maintain business and keep our customers happy as well as you know differentiate ourselves from our competitors by having reliability and our added reliability in our manufacturing process. Yeah, if we can reduce those uh not so good surprises, any way to reduce not so good surprises would be uh, beneficial. And you've articulated this prior, you and I have had a couple conversations beforehand, and you've articulated predictive maintenance as kind of finding choke points or error points to be able to diagnose things. Talk a little bit about what that looks like in practice. Maybe you can walk through a particular example of some kind of manufacturing equipment, maybe in automotive, where I know you've had a lot of experience. But let's make that tangible, because I thought that that perspective on finding choke points makes this a really tangible use case. Yeah. So, you know, traditionally, a lot of people have started their journey in terms of predictive maintenance through the concept of Internet of Things or applying additional sensors into their environment and being able to extract value from that unstructured data that the sensors are generating, right? When I look at predictive maintenance, I, I try to expand that a little bit and start thinking about the concept of adding computer vision into the flow as well, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so traditionally, if you're just looking at it from a sensor perspective, you can almost think of that as being able to hear your tooling environment. By complementing that with a computer vision capability, you're able to see what's going on as well. Under that premise, we can then tie those correlations even further by having the ability to view what's going on throughout our process. And essentially, when we start seeing deviations in, in say, output quality, then we can determine whether there's an underlying issue that's relating to it, related to our tooling environment, right? And eliminate that threat or incorporate that into our strategy or maintenance strategy to avoid potential equipment failure or even more expensive equipment damage by not doing anything. Yeah. And it's interesting you're bringing up you know, hearing and seeing your manufacturing environment, because as you're probably aware, Everton, most of the use cases we've covered in, in the predictive maintenance space, I don't know, over the last four or five years have been around more, I don't know if I want to say traditional telemetry data, but vibration and heat, generally speaking, right, are the majority of the sensors that we normally see associated with predictive maintenance applications. But you're bringing up a good point, which is around sound uh, and even around sight, and that these might be able to pick up on variance in the behavior of our equipment. I mean, the, the way that I've traditionally seen this uh, explained with vibration and heat is we, we let's say we've got you know, 200 metal presses of some kind that are stamping out some automotive part, whatever the case may be. We've got 200 of these, these uh, machines, and they're all a little bit different, but they're the same basic machine. And we know where their general failure points are. We know that what, what joints or what 
portions of the machine, you know, tend to fail. And we, we have at least an informed intuition based on the people on the shop floor as to what we want to look for. We want to look for certain parts getting overheated. We want to look for certain kinds of vibration. We want to look for certain abnormalities in certain parts of the machine. And so we tack on our sensors and then we run it. If we think about something like audio, which you've brought up, or video, I imagine it's kind of the same. We basically ask our same shop floor experts, hey, what kind of sounds are you listening for when you go down here when you know it's time to turn a machine off? Or, you know, what are you looking for on this part of the machine or at this base of the machine or on on maybe, you know, part of the stamp itself or whatever part of the machinery we're looking at that will let you know that this may be something that needs to be addressed, needs to be improved, or maybe even we need to wind this machine down in order to fix this so nothing catastrophic happens. Is it the same kind of exercise as it would be for other other uh, sensors? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's that's exactly the heart of it. In its simplest form, think about it in the morning when you turn on your 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 car in the garage, if you shut it off and investigate, right? And and so what we're doing from a computer vision perspective is, is really looking for things that don't look right, whether it's quality of my output or whether it's alignment of a cut or a hole or any other specification that's built into the design. If something doesn't look right, it gives us an opportunity to investigate and more importantly, help us accelerate our ability to determine root cause. Yeah. And getting to root cause, I guess, if we can nip it in the bud, so to speak, then we'll be in a much better position than if we're just fixing things when they're breaking. Do you see, maybe before we move into our next use case, I'm interested in your perspective here. What do you think it's going to take as as predictive maintenance becomes more and more the norm? What do you think it's going to take for these things to become truly diagnostic tools where we can actually get to root causes? Because some of these interfaces and this technology is new. You know, the folks on the shop floor are certainly not data scientists, and luckily they don't need to be. But being able to use these new tools to not just say, oh, this machine might be at risk, let's check it out. But to go deeper than that and make it a diagnostic tool, what has to develop for that reality to come to life? Because I think it's a promising vision, and I know a lot of folks are going to want to know how can we make it real. Well, I, I think it's an evolutionary process, right? And I, I think the, the founding foundation for this is the, the concept of continuous improvement. So, you know, as mentioned earlier, you start your journey from an IoT or sensors in the environment, and you've seen improvements. Small improvements can have significant impact on, on return on investment, right? And, and so as we start looking for future opportunities to improve, we start, you know, trusting and relying on the data and the results that come out. And then we start thinking broader on how can we expand technology for the benefit of continuous improvement in our manufacturing process. Big time. Certainly some culture change elements that go into that just as AI adoption in any other enterprise would be. And I guess that... And that spins us into our our next use case here as well. You and I already, Everton, are talking uh, to some degree about detecting anomalies. In predictive maintenance, detecting anomalies is part of it. You know, our you know our drill press or whatever normally has these patterns of vibration or heat or or sound or whatever. And if we see something wildly different than that, we might want to check it out. So anomaly detection is already part of predictive maintenance, but anomaly detection is even broader. It can be used for other kinds of use cases. And I know you've thought about computer vision and anomaly detection and seen a number of use cases that are promising there. What would you like to use as maybe a representative example of anomaly detection as kind of a separate use case? 
I like to use the stamping process as an example. Uh, I think it's 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 an interesting use case in the sense that a typical stamping process, you're you're stamping out, you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand units per hour, and it's very quick, and in many cases, very precise, right? And it's an interesting use case because stamping process typically you have an operator at your machine and given the volume of of stamps per hour a, a human simply can't keep up and as a baseline you're limited to sampling one two maybe five units per hour and that's a very very small percentage against your output yeah now if you were to apply computer vision into that process all of a sudden you go from you know sampling five units per hour to sampling 100% of your units yeah. real time as they're stamped. And that's a tremendous improvement in quality uh, assurance as part of that process. Huh, okay, so yes, sir, this is, um, now we're talking about quality, which is different than predictive maintenance. So certainly being able to use vision on our equipment to figure out if it's gonna break down, that could be anomaly detection. But here we're talking about an even broader use case, applying computer vision to the end product we're, we're working on. As you had said, you know, I can imagine having somebody on the side of this press who every now and again is going to pull off one of these stamped things, take a look at it. You know, they've got a couple quick metrics to score it based on, and they know whether it's going okay or it's not going okay. But I can also imagine a world where a computer vision algorithm trained well enough, you know, from the right angle with the with the right lighting, and, and there would be some training here, but trained well enough would be able to determine a one to a hundred score on every single stamp that goes through. So we can figure out if we have a, a five minute period of crappy quality, what the hell's going on over here? And we, we can immediately go over and examine the thing and have it on somebody's dashboard, as opposed to missing those, you know, 50 stamps, because it wasn't one of the five we were able to do in an hour. Yep. And that's a great overview. But really, the benefit here is not only do I, I, I get 100% quality assurance of all of my stamps going through the line, but also, and more importantly, I'm able to pinpoint where my anomalies occur and address the anomaly as opposed to, oh, we had some bad samples, so we got to throw the whole batch away. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So so we're, so there's, there's the ability to, to, instead of taking this whole pile that came out of this particular machine line and saying, this is a junk pile, we can say, well, within this 10-minute span probably everything there needs to be junked or melted back down because it's useless. But the stuff before or after is actually okay. And so let's go ahead and keep it because all the signals lead us to think that it's quality. So even if a mishap does happen, we can reduce the impact of that mishap because we know exactly where it went down. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. We, we can pinpoint and isolate the impact of the mishap. Got it. Cool. And then so again, yeah, this is taking the idea of anomaly detection farther than predictive maintenance. When you think about what it takes to to get such a system up and running, it seems like you know we'd we'd have to train our cameras or our vision systems to look at a particular machine in a particular way under a particular set of lighting well enough and with enough frequency and with maybe enough human intervention to know that it was trained well and it was going to be reliable. What's important to bear in mind when we bring an application, just like the one you're describing here, when we bring that kind of thing to life in a company? Well, it all starts with, you know, having a very defined problem you're trying to resolve, right? Yep, so yep. in the case of stamping, we know that we're looking at quality and, you know, as a, a derivative of that, the impact 
is minimizing scrap materials, minimizing waste, right? So having a clearly defined problem is definitely the place to start. Then from there, it's understanding the data. And in this example, again, we're training or creating a model that helps us, that determines good versus bad product with a very good level of accuracy, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and so we're able to determine what's good product, what's bad product, and make real-time decisions based on you know the video images that are coming out of the system real-time. And hopefully for folks who are considering sort of adopting these technologies, some of this is a good level set for what you're going to run into and what factors you need to consider ahead of time. Certainly, Everton, to your point, defining success early on, you know, are we looking to reduce waste? Are we looking to improve quality? If so, by what metrics and how are we measuring those metrics? Having that clear off the bat, 100% important. And I know we've got one other use case we wanted to cover in addition to these. And this is one that when you and I were talking about it off microphone, struck me as unique and one that I think folks in manufacturing probably haven't considered because I know for you, natural language processing is even a technology that's going to make its way into manufacturing. It seems reasonable to me, but frankly, it's it's not one that's often talked about. You had covered kind of the relationship between vehicles and passengers. Obviously, automotive is a space where you have a lot of rich experience. Talk a little bit about where you see manufacturing and NLP intersecting, because I think this will be an eye-opener for people in heavy industry. Yeah, so I, you know, I think the, the interesting concept of NLP is that it gives us the ability to bring closer relationships between the interaction of humans and the machines, right? You think about industry, you know, 4.0, and there's a number of different definitions. Yes, 10 people, you'll get 10 different definitions. But to me, we're really what industry 4.0 is all about is bringing together or tightly coupling machine, human, and process right? And NLP is a tool that allows you to do that, right? Whether it be having a quick access to manual information, yep, yep. queries and manuals, queries and, you know, databases on specifications, databases on product evolution, right? Yep. How has my product evolved? Things of that nature that we can document. It gives us the ability to tie that into that stream as well. You know, when we, you and I were talking previously, I, I mentioned NLP in the automotive industry. And, and really, you know, the automotive industry is going through a huge transformation, as is manufacturing in general. Um, but what's really interesting is when you look at the automotive industry, it's really reshaping and being redefined as we speak. And I think in the future, we'll start seeing the vehicle more as a platform and think of it less as a mode of transportation, meaning, it's always there and it's available. And so a lot of automotive companies today are looking at two things. Number one, how do they monetize the data that they have? And secondly, how do they create a tighter relationship between their vehicle platform and their customer base? And NLP is a great way to do that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I uh, we've done a lot of interview work over the years with Nuance Communications, who's doing a lot of vehicle as platform NLP and voice work. There's a lot of relationships in the autonomous vehicle space. They're thinking about this because if people aren't having to focus on the road as much in the, you know, a little bit farther future here, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're doing whatever they want, I guess. Maybe they're working, maybe they thinking about what they want to do that evening. And now that's going to open up all kinds of new queries or needs that these customers might have. Do you see this, you know, some people imagine kind of whatever an OnStar is today, where maybe we can call if we have an emergency. 
and expand that with AI to more of like a Siri type of relationship where, hey, can you take me to a good place for Chinese or spoken directions or maybe just general questions and queries? What, what do you think in, in the, the kind of voice and customer relationship side of things in the automotive platform? What do you think are going to be the most common use cases where we'll start to see this this space sort of leveling up? Well, I, I guess to to answer that, we kind of need to think a little bit futuristic, right? Let's do it. So imagine a world where we are in a fully autonomous vehicle world. And there, you know, traveling in a car is more about a, an experience, right? And And two things are going to happen. People are going to get more productive and people are going to have a new opportunity to relax, right? And by relaxing, I guess that adds to productivity because you're fully charged when you get to where you need to go. Now, with having that better relationship with our vehicles, and let's say I'm, I'm making a trip from Detroit to Chicago, along the way, I get hungry and my vehicle knows my personality, my, my meal preferences, things of that nature. It's a whole different relationship with your vehicle. It's a whole different experience in traveling from point A to point B. And I, I think that's going to be really key to that whole premise. Yeah. And, and you'd even mentioned before some low-hanging fruit practical use cases. I would definitely advocate that folks think about and imagine a more far future where these things are radically shifting. And I think it's really hard to imagine that we won't have a different relationship with our cars in that future. You even talked about some use cases in the near term that I thought were at least worth addressing. Talking about your user manual. I mean, I remember my first car, my second car, I, I had a paper user manual kicking around somewhere. To be frank, Everton, I, I don't think I ever flipped the thing open, probably because it was boring and I, I don't know, I <laughs> like go home and try to Google something rather than flip through this paper book. But it might be possible for us to say, hey, I'm seeing this noise or hey, I see this light on the dash and you know, like, what are the things that this probably means? And is it safe for me to drive to New York this weekend? And being able to actually get a response based on the user manual's information. We, we see things in corporate. In the corporate world, there's chatbots and very simple conversational interfaces being used for FAQs so that somebody can ask and kind of open text question, and they can get a response about where is the parking lot if I'm in the Chicago office, or what's the HR policy about XYZ, and they can just access that in a more fluent way that's also quite simple. Do you imagine something similar for you know big stodgy documents like a user manual? Absolutely. And then, you know, think of that not only in English, but in any other language that's out there as well. Right. Yeah. And again, it's all about enhancing that relationship between the person, the vehicle and the brand. Right. Yep. And I think another important variable to look at this as well is, you know, while we're on the topic of autonomous vehicles, when we think about autonomous vehicles, everyone thinks about level four, level five, where the car is just out there driving by itself. And, you know, we've got some some road ahead of us to get there. We right? do, we do. But in the meantime, there's plenty of opportunity for the automotive and community to bring some of these features into their platforms today, right? So in other words, you know, the NLP capabilities that we're talking about in vehicle today, you don't necessarily need a fully autonomous vehicle to take advantage of nope. having that, Definitely that relationship with your vehicle, having access to your manual, having access to a number of other opportunities to enhance that relationship with the passengers and the vehicles. Big time. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no reason to wait until you're kicking back with your feet up to be able to ask simple questions, whether it be directions or manual, et cetera. Those things can be upgraded concurrently. And, and it's safe to say that there are 
companies already working on that right now. Uh, but I think many of the folks who are tuned in who are purely in manufacturing or automotive may not have thought as much about NLP. So I wanted to make sure that we could unpack that use case for everybody here as well and be able to roll that out. Go ahead. So, so Dan, let, let me let me make one other comment. You know, yeah. so like last, last week I was reading an article. I think it was um, they were talking about Chick Fil A and McDonald's and the whole drive-through dilemma, right? Yes. Where people are avoiding the drive-through. They're avoiding fast food because of the the lines in the drive-through. Yep. Right. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. It is. To me, it almost seems like NLP and this vehicle, this whole conversation. There's an answer buried in there somewhere. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. I like where you're going where, you know, we're, I'm, I'm, uh, seven miles from the Chick-fil-A. I voice my request. It gets confirmed via voice. I say yes, or maybe I make whatever changes I want. And then I'm just picking up what I'm picking up as opposed to having to sit in line, explain my order, clarify my order, and then sit there in idle with the rest of the cars. Absolutely right. Yeah. I th- well, Starbucks is a good inspiration for this in an app context, but I think while you're driving, you might have to make voice happen. And I think voice would be almost a forcing factor because you don't want people looking at their phones when they got their hands on the wheel. Um, and so this could be an interesting use case. I would advocate for our listeners to think about all those junctures where couldn't this problem be solved in this way and then see if AI might be the best natural fit. I appreciate you throwing out that little example as an imagination opener there, Everton. And we got to cover a lot today. I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to pack three use cases into 30 minutes, to be honest with you, but we did it. And I'm glad we were able to. And Everton, I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for being able to join us here on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Everton for being able to join us on this episode. And thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. It means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Glad to have you here as a listener. And if you are interested as a listener in making sure you stay on top of all of our latest podcasts, use cases, and infographics here at Emerge, be sure to follow us on social. Our Twitter and LinkedIn followings have grown since I've mentioned it on the show. So it's great to see some of our podcast folks joining the conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find us at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter, very simple, or Emerge, E-M-E-R-J, Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or on Facebook, and stay up to speed with literally everything we publish. So if you want to stay ahead of the curve when it comes to use cases and trends, uh, be sure to join the conversation on social. We'd appreciate having you there as well. Thanks again for tuning in today on the AI and Business Podcast. I look forward to catching you in the next one.